about 15 seconds now. Game so play. I think we can go ahead and go. Ready? Yep. Okay, everything is... I got a thumb, so that's one. Do I get another thumb? Yep. Okay, so we're live everywhere, we hope. Live on Facebook, looks like this. Okay, well, that'll be good. Okay, I want to start out today by just saying thank you to everybody who has written me and encouraged me. It's been really amazing. I don't even know how to respond to it sometimes. It's extraordinary. Uh, I'd spend more time on that today, but I really don't want to be in a position where I run out of time. So here we go. February 18, 2024. How about that, huh? It's been a long time. This is an introductory lecture, as most of mine are, when I do have this kind of an issue. And it's discussion number 208 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 9, Genesis 14, Genesis 15. And as you know, due to circumstances far beyond my control, uh, i.e. my unpredictable physical ailments being the foremost example of something beyond my control, I'm hesitant to embark, uh, actually attempt to reassume where I left off uh, for a bunch of reasons, which was lecture number 207. So I won't be doing that today. I think it's best to tread slowly for a while until I'm operating at least 80%. And I have talked to people who have my condition, and I've watched them on the Internet forums that have gastritis, chronic gastritis. You never get back to where you were. You always get maybe 80 90% capabilities which I'll be, I'll embrace. For sure, I'll be really happy with that. My estimate for today is I'm about 50%. I'm a little bit woozy, a little bit dizzy, uh, not necessarily great st- stability. And, and the, uh, but hopefully my valiancy will continue to improve. The, the rate of recovery, uh, remains inconsistent. That's the problem that I have. I don't, I have good days. I have really bad days. I have really good days. and I have a little bit of bad day. I'm sleeping well, finally. Uh, but that's something that continues to plague my resolve and my morale is this inconsistency. I can't count on being in any position at any given day. So for today, my, my intention is to delve into subjects that are relevant to 2024, uh, as well as the immediate future. future sorry about that. Because of this war in Israel, we have a war in Israel, which is an extraordinary thing. The theological community um, is hopefully embracing and beginning to discuss Ezekiel 38, as, and they should. I mean, this is a phenomenal event, if this is the case. And the essential question then is obvious. Are we currently witnessing the Magog-Gog of Ezekiel 38, 1-17, the latter days, Ezekiel 20, or 38, 8, 38.14, 38.16, Deuteronomy 4.30. Are we in the latter days? And what are the latter days? As you know, uh, you, you see uh, Ezekiel 38 describes a confederacy led by Rosh. Rosh is an ancient word for Russia. We get Russia out of Russia. And, and, and of course, it, it identifies Ezekiel 38, 38. I'll write this down identifies this place. I mean, did I get that right? Let me spell it right. M-O-S-O-C-H. I forgot the O. Let me get another one. I know it looks bad. Masoch. O-C-H. I left out the C this time. And I see what I'm telling you. 
spelling has become a challenge. Masoch, of course, has been, uh, as you would recognize, and of course it also says Tobol, and that would be Tobolsk, and Masoch is the, and Masesh is the uh, fundamental part of the word Moscow. So we have Russia absolutely defined in Scripture in Ezekiel 38, and of course Persia has become Iran, and Libya, uh, to name another one of the principles identified in Scripture. So there can be no controversy that Russia and Iran are intent on conducting a war against Israel. Currently, they're conducting a proxy war against Israel. They're clearly orchestrating, providing supplies to the terrorist armies that are surrounding Israel, the Hezbollah, the Hamas, the Houthis. All of these terrorist organizations are being fed by Russian and Iranian capital and, and armed. Ezekiel 39.1, God says, Behold... So let me say that better. Behold, I am against you, Rosh, Meshesh, Maskah, and Tubal, Tobolsk. And eventually Turkey is going to be involved in this, and they are already showing signs that they're going to align themselves with Russia. So those are going to be the main factions that attack Israel in the latter days, the latter days. And I should interject that Russia, Turkey, Germany all have this great sin of genocide with them. Russia murdered millions of Jews under Stalin. Germany did it as well. As you know, that's the Holocaust. And Russia also killed millions of Ukrainians. That's the Holodomor of 1930-1933. Starved them all to death. And the Young Turks, as evil a group that's ever existed, slaughtered the Armenians 1914-1918. So these, these confederacies that have been in existence for many, many hundred, almost 100 years are going to reform themselves and they're going to attack Israel. That's the ultimate goal and has been for, for centuries. And all three of these countries, as I said, have this great sin of genocide. And what will God do? What did he do at the time? Well, he will bring retribution. He will bring, bring recompense. He will destroy Russia, Turkey, Iran, and Germany. He remembers and he waits. We know what he says. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Deuteronomy 32:35, Romans 12:17-19. He's going to send fire and he will bury Russia. That's what Ezekiel 39:6 and 39:11 say. Russia is a doomed state. They are part and parcel. They are the leading confederate in this attempt to destroy Israel. Now you have to ask yourself, well, why is Russia interested in destroying Israel? One, number one reason, in my view, is that they are a single source economy. In other words, all they have is fuel. We'll get to that in a minute. I'm, now I'll repeat the question. Are we watching the birth pangs of this confederacy, Ezekiel 38 and Ezekiel 39? Are we watching it today? Can we see it happening? And if you have concluded that we are, and I hope that you have begun to consider it at least, but the conclusion, I think, is ultimately pretty obvious, then there are going to be many obvious questions to address here. And it's difficult, if not impossible, to prioritize the issues that are within. So, so I will make no such attempt today. Uh, I will revert to my default methodology of hurling questions that appear to be cacophonous, discordant, some would say, crazy, others would say, certainly not relevant, they would say. And so, in other words, uh, uh, and, and listen, I'll say this to that to that con complaint. You, I hope you know, everyone knows, that Scripture is infinitely interdependent. Uh, correlative. 
if you prefer. Infinitely such. So all that to say, lower your expectations for today. I'll begin with Ezekiel 38 war. This invasion of Israel by asking, does Ezekiel 38 precede or follow the abduction of the bride? Did you see where I leaped? I want to know. I know I got a war. Is the church going to be here for it? Okay, does, does the, this confederate, confederacy attack before or does it come after the abduction of the church or the bride? And, and, and that, of course, is described in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, John 14.3, Matthew 24.30-31, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Luke 10.20, Revelation 3.7-12. And then specifically for today, more than anything else, Revelation 3.10. So that rapture is defined all over Scripture. And what does Revelation 3.10 say? This is Christ speaking to the church of Philadelphia, one of the last, one of the last ages of the church. Actually, they, all the churches have a, have a continuing. They, they run concurrently. This is what Christ says. I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who remain, dwell on the earth. And I do that because you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So because the church of Philadelphia, the last church, I believe, the church age of Philadelphia has start, began in the early 1900s or late 1800s and has gone all the way to now. So again, it's running concurrently with all these other church ages. It's a, not just a, it's not a, yeah, another, the, the seven churches are all simultaneous. They are not chronological. I'll get to that some other time, but not today. But again, let me repeat that. Because you have kept my word and have not denied my day, name, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who remain, who dwell on the earth. That is a promise from Christ to the church. To the church that has kept his name. And, and then, of course, more verses for you to look up. Matthew 24, 30 through 31. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. Romans 8, 18 through 19. Daniel 12, 1 through 2. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 18, Revelation 11, 15 through 19, Matthew 25, 1 through 13. All of those testify that he's going to abduct the bride. And, and obviously there are more scriptures that refer or describe the bridegroom, Christ, uh, coming to snatch away his bride. It's step 11 of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. As you know or should know. But uh, I should say, I don't know where to put this, there are quite a few numbers of religious semi-professionals who insist and they teach that the bride, the church, uh, will not be abducted. Uh, It will not be taken. That, that, That promise in 310 of Revelation isn't true. And therefore, all of us are going to face the Great Tribulation. They want everybody to be tested in the Tribulation. That's what they think. And Christ, as you know, cursed the fig tree. And so that's some places where they they put a great deal of emphasis. And they know that the, Isra- that the fig tree is Israel, and so they think that Israel is permanently uh, cursed, and the church has replaced Israel, and that, of course, is not true at all. Israel will be restored. The fig tree is a symbol of Israel. That's absolutely true. And it says this, when its branch has become tender, summer is near. So the branch of Israel will become tender again. The fig tree will be, have a tender 
position, and that is when summer is near. And, uh, of course, here other, other verses that I, I always say, I try to bring to, to this argument. Song of Solomon 2, 10 through 13. Hardly ever mentioned in this, in this position or this debate. Come away, my beautiful one, for the winter is past. You can see the relationship to the summer is near, the winter is past. Arise, my darling, it says in Solomon 2, 10 through 13. The time for singing has come. That is a picture of the rapture. There's no question about it in my mind. Matthew 24, 32 through 34. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. The fig tree will be restored. It'll, it will have branches that are, are new. So Israel will re, will re, uh, how do I say it about a plant? What does a plant do? Give me a help. Israel will, will blossom again. There we go. And again, I, there's a lot of religious semi-professionals who don't buy this argument and they don't even see it and they don't want to see it. They ignore all the verses that talk about the abduction of the bride and the bridegroom coming for his, for his beloved Israel and restoring her as, as a wife. And, uh, and he has, so again, let me repeat this. Israel is in a symbol of a, an adulterous wife that has been divorced. The church is in a symbol of a virgin bride that is about to be married. doesn't mean he's polygamous. It's, these are symbols that he's using just so we can understand how he's doing things. Anyway, you're highly... You're adorable. You're adorable, highly trained religious professional. I didn't get it right, did I? <laughs> I won't try to write anything anymore. I get over here and forget what my name is. But I, I thought I would add adorable. The A-H-T-P. I vociferously rise up in direct opposition to this view that there is no rapture. I think that is a position that does a lot of damage. Uh, and so the volume of Scripture testifies of an abduction, which is why I recited all of these primary passages. Again, back to where I was, I quoted Revelation 3, 8 through 12, where Jesus God himself speaks of the rapture. He, that's clearly what he's talking about there. You can't ignore that, but you, they do. On the condition, though, that those who have not denied his name, name are going to be the ones that are kept from the hour of trial. So there's your, there's your interrelation. Obvious question, which of his names are we, are we supposed to keep? We're supposed to keep one, for sure. You kept my name. There's singularity. It doesn't say you kept my names because you have kept this name. So there's a name there that we need to know, don't you think? Which of his names are we to keep? And it says Christ will write upon these that have kept this name, his new name, Revelation 3.12. So we have a new name that we have to know. He writes it on the ones that have kept his that have kept his old name, if you want to think of it that way, or his previous name. So what's the new name of Jesus Christ? Now we begin uh, investigating that at Exodus 3.4 and 3.14. And this, as you know, is where the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus Christ himself, comes to Moses and appears to him in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. Bush. Mist of the bush. That mist is very important. I'll try to write mist See if I can do that. Yay. 
Maybe after another couple of years, I'll be able to write things on this board again. Christ repeatedly is referred to as being in Scripture as, as, I'm sorry, He's repeatedly referred to in Scripture as being in the mist. He wants to be in the mist. What's He thinking? What's He doing? What's He mean here? The crucifixion is the most foremost in my opinion. Jesus is in the midst of the two thieves. Also John 20.19, John 8.59, Luke 4.30, Luke 24.36. And I suggest in all of this uh, Genesis 15.7, Genesis 14.18-21. That's Melchizedek. Melchizedek is between Satan and Abraham. That's how you know it's Christ. Because Christ always wants to be between Satan and his people. So you know Melchizedek between Satan, king of Sodom, that somehow is resurrected. He's trying to get Abraham to be uh, to accept. He wants the people, and he give Abraham the money. And so that becomes a very important place. Melchizedek is Jesus Christ. It's clear and obvious. I've talked about that before. The King of Peace, Salam, is what he is called. The Priest of the Most High Godhead, without having a beginning nor end of life. That's Melchizedek. Hebrews seven one through three. So he's an infinite being that is the King of Peace. It's the high priest to the God Most High. And he's life itself. Only Christ can fulfill that description. But it's a critical truth that Christ is our high priest and that he is between us and the throne. And, and why is he doing that? Why must he be between us and the throne? Well, because of Gethsemane. There's somebody who wrote something on Facebook, and I try to read all of those that I can, and, and some of them I can find, some of them I can't, but it seemed her name was, I think, Gabriella, and she wanted to know why it's, she couldn't figure out Gethsemane. Well, because Gethsemane is 1 Timothy 3.16. It's incredible. We'll never figure it out. We'll do our best we can, but you'll never get it all. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm veering off focus. The name of Jesus Christ must be kept. Exodus 3.13, Moses asked the angel of God, What is your name? And Jesus responds, I am that I am. That's what he says. I am that I am. Something that Jesus constantly declares. It's the I am the existent one. I am The Greek is the ego, imi. Again, the existent one. There are at minimum 35 times that God says, I am that I am. He's constantly repeating it. I'm sure that's at minimum. There's probably another 35. Revelation 1.8, John 14.11, John 11.25, John 8.12, Mark 14.62, Jeremiah 23.23-24, John 8.24, which lines up with Revelation 3.10 and 11, which is important. Behold, I, I, I am coming quickly. John 8.24, For if you do not believe I am, you will perish in your sin. Let me do it a little bit different. For if you do not believe I am that I am, you're going to perish in your sins. Pretty crit- critical piece of information, wouldn't you think? So I'll ask the question, do you believe that He is the I am that I am? To everyone on the internet, it's a binary question, yes or no. Please answer yes. So uh, therefore, I, I, I'm submitting that because it's so critical that uh, the name that must be kept is the I am that I am. We must believe that Jesus Christ is the existing one, the one who has given every piece of existence that there is. He's the one that gives existence. 
from whom all existence flows, if you want to think of it that way. We must believe He is the source of all life. We must believe He is Creator God, the Lord God Almighty. We must believe that to be saved, to be kept out of the time of trial and test for the entire world. Those who believe His name will be kept. They will be abducted. They will be raptured before the hour of trial. Again, Revelation 3, 10 through 12. Okay, hopefully I've established this crucial principle. I'm doing the best I can. I'm beating away at it. And notice that Laodicea does not believe Jesus Christ is the I am that I am. Philadelphia does, but Laodicea does not. And he defines, identifies the Laodicean church as what? He says they're lukewarm. What am I going to do with the lukewarm? I'm going to vomit them out of my mouth. That's what he says, Revelation 3:15 through 20. He's beating on the door there of the contemporary church of our time, the Laodicean church, and nobody opens the door. He's not inside the church. You've heard me say that many, many times. He's outside the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church that he vomits out ultimately because they don't keep his name. They don't know who he is. They don't want to know who he is, and they absolutely, in my view, deny who he is. They never want to say that Jesus Christ is God himself. They don't want to say it. They want him to be subordinate somehow. I've gotten that my whole so-called career. But my point today is that in Laodicea, his name is not taught, it's not known by the church of the latter days. Oh, there we go. That's a latter-day church. Not latter-day saints. A latter-day church. Big difference. A church that's in the latter days. That's not good news for them. Okay, returning to Ezekiel 38. Is this before, during, or after the abduction of the bride? Does that confederacy attack Israel before, during, or after the rapture of the bride? What do we know? How do we begin to solve the question? That's the same way as always, uh, Pinky. The same way we do it every time. Accumulate every scripture that is directly, even indirectly, that contacts the matter of contention. In this case, go find all the abduction verses and all of Ezekiel 38 passages and sift through and look for parallels and correlations. For example, Ezekiel 38:14 through 36. Therefore, son of man, prophesied and say to Gog. Gog is Russia. The uh, the Russian leader. Thus says the Lord God: On that day, when my people Israel dwell safely. Notice he said, "My people." Those of you who think that he does abandon Israel, you should study the, the pronouns here. When my people Israel dwell safety, safely, will you not know it? So there's going to come a time when the Russian army and the Iranian army and the Turkish army and whoever else is involved, Libya is involved, Syria is involved, I'm sure, maybe Saudi Arabia, maybe Egypt, we'll find out. When that, when that confederacy makes a decision, they're going to make a, they're going to think, they're going to know that Israel believes that they're okay. Israel, Israel is, has this false opinion of their safety. Then you will come from your place out of the north. So they're going to wait for Israel to let their guard down, essentially. You and many peoples with you, all of them riding horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel. Can't say it again strong enough. You will come up against my people Israel, God says, like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me, says the Lord God. 
so there's your purpose. This this confederacy is going to be hooked and lured out by God. And he's doing it so that all the nations will know him. So says the Lord. That's the purpose. And obviously our first of many tasks is to evaluate evaluate that day and latter days. What is that day? When is that day? And what is latter days? How many days are in latter days? Not ladder as walk up and down a ladder and fall off like I always do. But ladder, L-A-T-T-E-R. Or obviously, if we can correctly identify what day that is, what day will the Israelites be dwelling confidently? And the Hebrew there that's usually translated safe, safely does not mean safely. It infers security based on confidence. And right now Israel has a very powerful military and they have great faith in their military capability. I would, I would tell you based on Moshe Carmelian uh, physics and some of the other physicists that are in Israel that they have nuclear capacity. So, for Ezekiel 38 to be fulfilled, what has to happen? Well, Israel has to exist as a country. Rosh must be direct north. Russia must be involved. It must be direct north of Jerusalem. Russia must possess and be willing to mobilize a large invasion force all allied with Iran, Persia, and Turkey. And who else? We We can't be totally sure, but we know a huge army is coming with Russia leading the way and Iran being secondary to Russia. And Israel must be in control of the Golan Heights because that's where this is all going to happen is the Golan Heights. And the southern Golan Heights, as I've said before, has very large reserves of oil, billions and billions of barrels. And we had a president, Donald Trump, who gave control of the Golan Heights to Israel in 2017, which is a jubilee year. An extraordinary thing he did. What I want to know is that's that's where Armageddon is fought, ultimately. Megiddo. So I want to know what else happened here. Why is this the spot for this war? And it happens over and over and over again. And, and I just want you for today, uh, look at the mathematics of, of all this being true in 2024. Being forecast and prophesied 2,500 years ago that this was going to happen. What are the mathematical possibilities? Obviously, there are other pieces equal to the aforementioned that that raise the mathematical improbability to the ridiculous. Actually, it's ridiculous. It can't possibly have have come true, but it is. We're watching it, I believe. A bunch of stuff in Ezekiel 38, 39. The rebirth of the fig tree where the tender branch came out. Okay, That's a nation that has been gone for 1,900 years after the Romans invaded. 1,900 years later, that fig tree began to sprout blossoms. Calculate the odds. What are the chances that a nation has come back after 1,900 years? And this, Israel is now 75 years in re-existence. Israel is the only nation, the only nation that has a covenant with a creator God. It's the only one. There is no other. Second Chronicles 7.14 Why is Israel the only nation with a covenant with God? Why? You have to go back and say, why did he choose them? He didn't choose them because they were beautiful or they were, they were 
intelligent. He, he chose them even with all their infirmities, if you wish to think of it that way. They're a very flawed group of people, just like we all are. But why is Israel the only nation with a covenant with God? There's a reason. He didn't, it's not arbitrary, is it? You know it's not arbitrary. So why has he done it with this nation? And this needs to be kept in the forefront if we attempt to uh, navigate the, the position of the timeline of the latter days of Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38 is a latter days prophecy. So I want to know the order if I can get it. The latter days also requires an accurate definition. Again, and it's God's definition of what means latter days, not our definition. Daniel 10.14 re- refers to the latter days. 2 Timothy 3.1 says in the last days. 1 Timothy 4.1 4, in has latter times there. It's 1 John 2.18, the last hour. Ezekiel 38.8, the latter years. The end of the age was what the apostles call it in Matthew 24.3. Joel 3.31, the great and awesome day of the Lord. Joel 2.11, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? That's a rhetorical question that implies no. None can endure it. And of course, how we begin this little expedition was Revelation 3, 8 and 3, 10. Because you have not denied my name. Because you have kept my command to persevere. Persevere to keep his name. I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell in the earth. Again, those are the words of the Lord God Almighty himself spoken from his mouth. Obvious question. I answered it already. What was his command to persevere? The command to persevere is to keep his name. You have to persevere keeping his name. What did we obey? How did we, how did we persevere? I think I answered all of that. I hope I did. As you know, Daniel identifies this as the 70th week. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Jeremiah says it's the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 37, 30, verse 7. And again, I, I submit the command to persevere is connected to the keeping of his name. He commands us to believe that he is the I am that I am and not falter. And I, that's something that I consider every time I get up here and talk. And to repeat something that I don't say enough, John 8.24, if you do not believe Jesus Christ is the I am that I am, you will perish in your sins. I can't say that enough. That's how critical this is. He commands us to believe that he is the Lord God Almighty, the Infinite One, the Aleph Tav, the, the resurrection and the life. And he asks right after that, do you believe me? Know his name, the I am that I am. Revelation 3.10 is a promise. Keep his name, be taken out before the tribulation. That's a promise. That's really good news, don't you think? John 1 John 5.10, if you do not believe you make the God, the Lord God, a liar. He says, "I am the, that I am." If you don't believe that, you're calling him a liar. That's fragile territory. Okay, moving along. Ezekiel 38. Will it come to pass before the abduction of the Gentile bride? The bride, of course, as you know, is comprised of those who believe that Christ is God, those who have kept His name. The third of the eleven mysteries here: the union of the Jews and the Gentiles. Ephesians 3: 3 through 6. Romans 11.25 says that Israel has been blinded in part. Can I write in part without screwing it up? That's very important in this mystery. They're blinded in part. What's that mean? 
that, again, that's the seventh mystery. That's the blindness of in part with the full number of Gentiles has come in. So let me repeat that. Israel has been blinded, sort of. How's that for a word? Not completely blinded, sort of blinded. That's the seventh mystery. And this blindness, this sort of blindness, that I'm calling it, that's a theological term now, sort of, that happens, that stays there until the full number of Gentiles has come in. So they're going to be blinded until there's a certain number of Gentiles that have come in. That's Romans 11.25. And the Greek intention of this phrase infers arrival to a final destination. So until the Gentiles have come to the final final destination, Israel is going to be blinded, sort of. And that blindness ends when that final Gentile comes across the finish line. To use a euphemism. John 14.3 states that our intended destination is our Father's house. And that, again, the come in implies a final destination. And that, we know, is the new city of Jerusalem from above. And the new city of Jerusalem from above is described like what? Do you know? Do you know? you know? A bride dressed for her husband, Revelation 21, 1 through 2. So he describes the Gentile bride as a as, as dressed for the bridegroom and descending in the new city of Jerusalem. Notice that Israel is blinded in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. How full is full? Who comes last? I have a position on who comes last. Would you like to hear my wild idea? My wild idea is that the last Gentile is a baby. So when he gets the last baby, now, why is he so interested in baby? Because it makes him mad. He's going to take all the babies until the time is over. And then he makes his move. We are murdering babies at a rate of unprecedented size. It might be billions of babies who have now been murdered. He's going to get them all. Then he's going to put a stop to it. Obviously, Israel will not be able to see fully. Their partial blindness is going to have to be removed. And it gets removed when the final Gentile has come in. That's what the Bible says. Right now you're sort of blinded. You can't see very good. You can't read the whiteboard. You can't read the paper here that you wrote. Do the best you can. You're blinded in part, but they're much more blinded than I am with regard with that my little demonstration. But... uh, they will not be, their partial blindness will be removed when the final Gentile has come to his destination. And what is Israel blind to? What do you suppose that they are blind to? What is it that they cannot see, will not confess, Romans 10.9? If you confess Jesus Christ is Lord God and believe he is the resurrection and the life, John 11.25, then you will be saved. 
They don't do that. Again, what is the full number of the Gentiles? Do you have a number? I think it's billions. I know God's intent, intentions, in the sense that what kind of person he is. He's a kind, loving person. He's going to take as many as he can. And again, what are these Gentiles coming into? They're coming into the new city of Jerusalem. That's my view. Those are answers that I'm giving you. You can argue with me some other time, not today. So what occurs? What event causes... How am I doing for time? Somebody needs to pay attention. I didn't I didn't notice. What do you think? 20 minutes, maybe? Okay, I'm doing pretty good. What is Israel blind to? What is it they, they cannot see, will not confess? What is the full number of Gentiles? How many? What are these Gentiles coming into? I hope I've answered all of those questions. What occurs now? That's where we are now. I've already answered this one also. What occurs, what event causes the nation of Israel to be healed from their blindness? Because again, their blindness is ended when that Gentile crosses the finish line. What event causes that? Well, we have John chapter 9, the blind man, the pool of Siloam, right? The I am walks through a crowded group that gathered to stone him to death. Now, those are a bunch of idiots. He walked right through them. A fool's errand, if there ever was one, we're going to stone God to death. Throwing rocks at creator God. That's derangement. The I am that I am can walk through people, John 8.59. That's what he does. The ultimate act of quantum tunneling. What are the mathematics that he will be hit by a lunatic throwing a rock? But I, I digress rant here. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the light of life, John 9, John 9, 5, John 8, 12, spits on the dust because he has a blind man in front of him. And so the potter makes clay. Isaiah 64, 8, John 9, 6. And what I think is obvious is that clay became eyes. We, we come from dust, so he needs dust, and he spits in it. And uh, he makes tissue with it. That's what he does. And the clay became eyes. He's the great physician, Mark, Mark 2.17. Good music. Needs a trumpet or a banjo. The clays, he made eyes. And he put the eyes into the blind man. And he told him to go wash in the pool of Shalom, the beggar. And the beggar was no longer blind. So that's interesting, isn't it? Why didn't he have, why didn't he, why does he have to go to the pool of Shalom? He's got new eyes. He's blind from birth. So he spits and makes eyes, puts them in there. It says, go wash. So what does the washing have to do with the blindness? It didn't have anything to do with the guy being able to see, but he did it anyway, and then he was able to see. So we have to figure that out. Because obviously that's talking about Israel's blindness. I, clearly I'm associating the blindness of Israel with his John 9 beggar. What event relates to the pool of Siloam? Is my question. Okay, something that God does. He lifts the blindness of Israel at the moment the number of Gentiles comes into the true church. 
And he's abducting the church. In my view, the church that keeps the name of Jesus Christ. The church that believes he's the I am that I am. That he's the existent one. That he's the infinite God of creation. When the complete number is reached, something unimaginable happens. Israel can see. That's pretty cool for Israel. Obviously, I have settled on an event that accomplishes the result that concludes the blindness of Israel. And I'm asking it this way. Is it Ezekiel 38? The abduction of the bride. Is it the abduction of the bride? Yes, ma'am. We don't know yet. Okay, I'm doing great. Anyway, Romans 11.11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fail? Certainly not. Let me repeat that. Romans 11.11 says this, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fail, that they should fall? Did I say fail? Then read my hand right. Certainly not. In other words, Paul is saying in that verse that they have stumbled, but they have not fallen. That's your blindness in part, right? The they in that verse is the nation of Israel. Israel has stumbled. Having stumbled does not mean Israel will fall. To put it in contemporary terms, the nation of Israel will be restored. Their blindness, the rejection is not final. Certainly not, the Bible screams. It's not final. And Israel stumbles because they, uh, they are blinded in part. So that's part of what, the reason that they can't walk right. As you know, 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24. Christ crucified unto the Jews is the stumbling block for which the Jews have been set aside for 2,000 years. They have not been preaching Christ crucified. They have not gone throughout the world declaring Christ crucified. But their time is near, Revelation 7:3. Let me throw this in here really fast. How did Melchizedek know Genesis 14:16? How did he know? Because he, he brings bread and wine, a communion. And what is communion? Communion is a symbol of what? Christ crucified. Again, how did Melchizedek know that? Melchizedek is the first to bring communion in Scripture. And again, notice that Abraham was not deceived by Satan. So I have the, the king of Sodom that is evil trying to deceive Abraham, and Abraham was not deceived, which puts him in the Job category and the Adam category. None of them were deceived. By Satan, which is really an impressive thing to be have that after your name, right? Okay, anyway, the sealing of the 144,000, Revelation 7, 4, 7, 5 through 6, they have an assignment. And it's obvious that they're not blind. They've all been to the pool of Siloam. They have a mission. And there's a seal upon them that is the name of Christ. He puts his na- new name on them on their foreheads, and all of the 144,000 are Jews. And they are the first fruits of the redeemed nation of Israel, and they go forth into the world preaching Christ crucified. That's what they do. Finally, after 2,000 years. The nation of Israel begins to fulfill their role as a witness for salvation through Jesus Christ only. The blindness is gone. They have, is gone. They have new eyes that are in place. Romans 11, 11 through 12 states that through the fall of Israel, meaning their refusal of Christ as Messiah, the Savior of the world, Matthew 12, 22-42, through that fall, they're going to be provoked to jealousy and salvation came to the Gentiles. So because the Jews fell, stumbled, and are blinded in part, 
the Gentiles got saved. And the Jews have been provoked to jealousy. And all of that to ask the basic obvious question, how does this conspire with the fullness of the Gentiles that it has come in? Is it going to? Along with those who kept his name and kept uh, that are kept by him. So I have, I have three groups now. I have the, the Jews who are no longer blind. I have the Gentiles who have been brought into the uh, olive tree, if you wish to think of it that way, grafted in. And I have 144,000 that are not blinded and are going crazy. Out there saying Christ crucified every day. That's what they do. And we have the ones that are kept out of the trial, the hour of trial, which will come, come upon the whole earth to test, the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. Again, what is that test? Make sure you know what the test is. I think I told you what the test is. The test is you have to keep his name. You have to believe who he is. You have to believe what he says he is. If you do that, then you're going to be fine. So, Christ abducts his church, his bride. And after this, what does he do next? Israel is provoked to jealousy. Are they still blind to Christ crucified then? When he abducts the church, is Israel still blind? Raise your hands if you think they're still blind. Never raise your hand. If Israel is still blind when he abducts the church, how does God remove their blindness? By what event? For those who still are awake, and remember that we began this lecture with a question, are we currently seeing the birth pangs of Ezekiel 38? That's what I asked, right? Jesus Christ is going to destroy this army with great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. He says that he will magnify himself and sanctify himself, and he will cause everything in the battle theater to shake at his presence. That's what he's going to do. He will make himself known in the eyes of many nations, Ezekiel 38, 17 through 23, and they shall know that Jesus Christ is God, Ezekiel 38, 23. So when he destroys that army, a lot of people believe. So will Israel know that Jesus Christ, the, the angel of the, of the Lord, the I am that I am, God himself in the flesh, will they know this when he comes to destroy this army of the Russian-Iranian Confederacy? And if Israel knows, how do they respond? What do they do when that, na- that army is destroyed? Extraordinary, shocking, fantastic appearance of the Lord God Almighty who fights on their behalf. How do they respond? What's the first thing they do? What's the first thing the Jews will do when they see the Lord God Almighty fighting for them, destroying an army that came to kill every single one of them? First thing they're going to do is build the what? Build the temple. First thing they do. Keep in mind the Ezra Nehemiah's Zerubbabel temple was made entirely of wood. Think of it as a log cabin if you want. Not to be commingled or conflated with the Solomonic temple, which was wood covered by gold everywhere, right? That's a picture of the deity of Christ, First Timothy 3.16, the mystery of godliness. Obviously, if the second temple was a wooden structure, the tribulational, tribulational temple could be quickly assembled. They, they could do that really fast. A couple of nail guns, worm drive saws, chop saws, got to have at least a 12-inch blade. Off they go. They'd have that temple built probably in the Two or three days. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, she is astonished. You asked a question 
I, it's a new, it's a new me. The astritis has caused a problem for me. <laughs> anyway, obviously, if the second temple is a wooden, it was a wood, the second temple it was a wood structure, and the tribulational temple would follow that pattern. And I submit the logical response to the appearance of Christ would be for Israel to build this, this temple. They'd do it immediately. Because they want God to enter the Holy of Holies in their temple, right? And fill up the room, right? That's what they want. Ezekiel 10, 18 through 19. And it's also likely that what will happen all over the world once the Jews see that Christ came and fought for them. What would, what would every Jew in, in New York City and all these cities around the world in Germany and all, all, they're everywhere. What are they going to do when Christ comes and destroys that army? They're all going to emigrate. They're all going to Jerusalem. Every single one. Jews from every nation are going to emigrate. It's going to be a massive, massive migration. When the Lord God Almighty destroys the invasion force within this massive army, millions of Islamic forces, is their intent on from the river to the sea? I don't know if you're familiar with that phrase, but it means the annihilation, the eradication of Israel. The Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. No Jew lives. That's what it means. But once that army is eliminated, who's going to fight Israel after that? Resistance from the surviving countries to Jewish pilgrimage into Israel and the building of the temple uh, on the Temple Mount, they'll, they'll take out the mosque. They'll just tear it, tear it down put the temple there. And it'll be all that. Well, there'll be no resistance. It'll be negligible if not outright dissipated. Who would dare attack Israel again after this? Well, that would be the Antichrist. He's going to attack Israel. Revelation 19, 17 through 21, and the Satanic Rebellion of the Millennial Age, Revelation 27 through 10. Each time the Ezekiel 38, 17 through 26 response, uh, he keeps doing it. Each time that they attack, they get the 38, 17 through 23 response. And you've got to ask this question. There's a Magog-Gog in Ezekiel 38. There's a Magog-Gog in Revelation. Why are there two Magog-Gogs? I'm not answering that question today, Jennifer. You answer it. But there's two for a reason. What's the reason? Neither the Antichrist army nor the Satanic army, the, the people in that, in that army, they don't know that they're going to be slaughtered. Why don't they know? Why can't they remember the Russians got slaughtered? But that's the motive of the Satan man and Satan, right? That's what they're doing. That's what this Gethsemane kiss by Judas Satan sets into motive. It gives us the motive. We, we can see the motive because of that kiss. It reveals the intent of Satan. What he wants is God to kill as many human beings as he can. As he will. Actually, it would be better. Satan wants God to kill human beings. That goes all the way back to the fall of Satan. Death for humanity through the hand of God. That's what their intentions are. Okay, what else can I throw into the mix? Does the rapture occur during the destruction of the first Magog-Gog attack? In other words, is it simultaneous with the first Magog-Gog attack? And let me repeat again, Jennifer, why are there two Magog-Gog? To put it another way, does Christ remove his bride while he is raining pestilence and blood from those who attempt to... Uh, this from the river to the sea idea. So while he's killing those that that army, 
destroying that army, liquefying it actually, uh, does he abduct the bride at the same time? And the question becomes, can God multitask? Does he connect the rapture of his defense to his defense of Israel? Is that what he's doing? I, I say that he is. What's the connection then? All this takes place in the latter days. Being able to calculate the latter days leads to Rabbi Yossi ben ha, Halifa, who wrote uh, Seder Alam Rabbah, and Bishop James Usher. Both men decided they're going to figure this out. Good for them. They attempted to calculate the breath of life being breathed into Adam's body, Genesis 2.17, as well as the day that Adam and Eve were sent out of God's garden. Now you want to know. Rabbi uh, Yoshi ben Halaf, if I said it right, he undercounted the, the Persian Empire by 160 years, so he came out 160 years off. Usher said 4004 B.C. is when Adam left the garden. Now, we know that the six days, right? Man gets six days, he gets 6,000 years, and then Christ takes the seventh day, the 1,000-year millennium. We know that. If it's 4,004, uh, then we have 2,000, we're at 6,004. Uh, I think there's some problems with some of this stuff, and I'll go over that in a later date. But it's a really good uh, thing. If we are at the end of the sixth day, holy mackerel, honey, child, we're going to see the invasion, and we're going to see the rapture simultaneous. We're going to see things that, that no one has ever be, begun to even consider. Uh, how, for Gabriella, how does Gethsemane, which is connected to Melchizedek in Genesis 15, fit? I'm helping you out there, Gabriella. you got to figure out what Melchizedek is doing. Why did Christ say to his disciples, his apostles, stay here and watch with me? Matthew 26:38. Watch and pray. Matthew 26:41. Watch what? What are they going to see? They're going to see something that no one else has ever saw. Pray for what? Watch and pray, lest you will enter into temptation and be deceived. So Satan's got to be around somewhere, huh? Gethsemane is the answer to why Christ, why Christ crucified is necessary. People ask me all the time, why did he, why did he have to die? Because of Gethsemane. Gethsemane explains why he had to die. The Elohim is showing their plan of salvation, the price that must be paid. A couple of silly things to say. Are we predestined to believe that we are predestined? No, we are not. That's absurd. The concept is ridiculous. And Gethsemane refutes the predestining of individual salvation. Next time we're together, I'll prove that. I'll prove it next lecture. I'm not sure when that'll be. You'll have to ask Dave. We'll figure it out. He'll post it. It'll be on Facebook. We hope if they allow us to post on Facebook. Somehow he'll get the word out. One more thing that we talked about before the, the lecture began. Do the hyper-Calvinists believe that predestination is before time? Because you have to believe that if you're a hyper-Calvinist. You are predestined for salvation before he instituted time. Is that possible? Or is that also ludicrous, absurd? Is predestination of salvation before time? I say no. I can prove it. I believe. And I'll try that next week or next time. When is, when is next time? 
Well, we're not sure, are we? We'll have to figure that out. And again, Dave will, Dave will put that out. Yeah, a week at a time, day at a time, really. Okay.
Before you meet him as the judge 